0: All right, welcome back to uh, the podcast.
1: Hey, James, thanks for having me.
0: Hey, thanks. Uh, special one-time guest, Frank.
1: <laughs> how's it how's it going? I'm pretty sure it's not my first time here, but it's going good. Have you been in the other episodes? I have. Oh. Yeah, been here for quite some time.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> here I thought I was just uh, talking to myself, hallucinating. <laughs> That's so strange.
1: It was just, uh, well, we've been doing it remotely for so long now it's pretty much just been me putting up a fake background of my face and you just talking at the face you didn't yeah. even know
0: i don't even like remember i i can't even tell what's real anymore like uh, who i'm talking to or whatever yeah it's uh, my psychologist will be glad to hear you're a real person or uh, he'll be <laughs> upset to hear that i now believe that you're a real person <laughs> one way or the other <laughs> but uh, i think that's what everyone's going through
1: We'll be exiting lockdown soon, so we'll be able to confirm it again. Yeah, yes. I believe it.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. just wait. They'll have like the Omega variant, and then uh, that'll uh, be like a one hit kill. Yeah. They'll be Remember like back how we inside. Said
1: you guys can get out. Well, we changed our mind. Get back inside.
0: Is this how cavemen felt when they were like dinosaurs outside and they couldn't go out? You know, they were stuck in their caves.
1: I think they still went out anyway. They just died.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should just go back to that. Simpler yeah, times, yeah. yeah. Just uh, right. hunt for food. It calls.
1: So you know what I love doing when I'm at home with plenty of spare time:
0: uh, reading books
1: and learning about design patterns.
0: Really? Oh. <laughs> well, I'm good. Glad that I get to ask you about your favorite design patterns today, Frank.
1: Yeah, I've been watching. There's this guy on YouTube. Um, all right, I'll tell you my. This is my, the, in a nutshell, my history of design patterns. Yeah. I found a book when I was studying at uni. There was a design pattern. There was a software course I was taking and you had to read the design pattern book. And we implemented a few design patterns in Java. And then at the time I was doing JavaScript. I wasn't doing any TypeScript. So I started trying to find design patterns in JavaScript, but there wasn't really many good articles on how to do design patterns in JavaScript.
0: It's JavaScript
1: yeah exactly
0: what do you mean design <laughs> we're here for scrum <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah but at the time I didn't know I'm like oh, like, why is there no patterns for JavaScript anyway it's all come full circle because now I've been writing a bit of TypeScript I found this guy on YouTube who's been doing really good videos on TypeScript design patterns so it's interesting what's to his see name how, can you plug him uh, I can't remember his name I'll is it Khalil Stemler no, it's not Khalil. But um, it's been good watching it because when I was previously learning about design patterns, I had nowhere to apply them. Whereas now, because we're using TypeScript, I can actually apply the design patterns inside our code with TypeScript. So, yeah. mm.
0: Well, uh, you had the same tools available to you. Really, you could have. It's just that uh, since... JavaScript is uh untyped it's harder to apply traditional object oriented um design patterns but yep. uh, design pattern is like that's it's a big word it's not just uh the things that I think we all think of like the gang of four book which mm-hmm. is like the the original design patterns book like yep. uh, factory pattern and whatever design pattern means a lot of things to a lot of people like uh there's architectural design patterns which are like how you deploy code, there's design patterns in, uh, I mean, even the way that you would come up with the systems. I think like you could probably say that product development people, like people who actually talk to customers, they have design patterns essentially that they follow. Mm. And then there's also like technical design patterns, like, uh, like the stuff I think we're talking about now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about like the big fat textbook which says, Okay, here's the factory pattern.
0: Abstract factory, abstract <laughs> factory, factory. And yep. uh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been getting a few of those. Pattern. Yeah, yeah. Have you what, Have you ever implemented any like object-oriented um, design patterns, do you think?
1: Oh, I've, done it, I've done a little bit with Java for that course, but since then, no.
0: What'd you do? What kind of stuff?
1: I think it might have been... Oh, actually, you know what? At one of my previous jobs, they had a factory... Um, they did have a factory pattern, And it was, that was, when I seen that for the first time, it blew my mind. Wow. It was like, um, it was like a factory to uh, get data so you could, because the place I was working had all these different microservices. So they had a factory which would um, generate a service which you could fetch data from. Um, but the way they implement it was really cool like you could just pass in a few parameters and it would go to the microservice for you and and get the data
0: yeah it encapsulates all that configuration for each service yeah 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 yep
1: and when i seen it for the first time blew my mind i'm like what is it took me at that time it took me like two days to work out what was going on but then as i worked it i'm like this is the best thing i've ever seen yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that's what normally happens it's, uh, it can be confusing at first, but uh, I guess the, the benefit of the design patterns that um, are named is that uh, once you see them once, you'll see them heaps of times, mm. even though they're all like bastardized versions of it and they're not quite that, you know. You at least have a starting point yeah. to, to communicate from. You
1: you know what, Every everything you implement now follows some pattern or is there, is there like um, gray area? when you're writing code where it might not actually sit inside a certain pattern?
0: No, I don't, I I don't typically uh, view it like that. Um, if uh, so, so it depends on what the problem is. So normally from a problem statement, you can get, if there you'll understand if there's like a design pattern that will help you. So for example, someone, uh, told me once that they needed to get like an audit graph of every single model in the system from multiple multiple perspectives, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds like like a strategy pattern kind of thing." It'll be easier if we implement implement it in this way. And then we implemented different algorithms for attacking the same problem from different perspectives, and we saved heaps of code. And what everyone thought was nearly impossible to accomplish, we we were able to do through strategy pattern. Yeah, but a lot of stuff. I mean yes everything's like a pattern that I've seen before like you try and be idiomatic uh in in the language somehow but uh, y- yeah I mean there's this, it, it's hard to say what what is a design pattern like is a is a lambda function handler a design pattern sort of yeah it's sort of like a like an interface but you don't always name it like that right and uh, I think without the name, it's not as much of a design pattern, even though it fits into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even though it is like a, a what you might call a, an adapter in like uh, like a hexagonal architecture, it's not because you haven't named it that way. So you're not you're not lending that part of the story. I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm yeah. sure everyone is, like, there's probably a design pattern for almost everything you do outside of super, super procedural stuff. And that design pattern would just be called, like, uh, iterating, I guess. <laughs> Mapping <laughs> through lists. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, why did you decide to pick the book back up again? Because I know you, we were talking about it earlier. Oh, what time? Maybe the end of last week. You, you like, posted in the channel because you were looking for your design book. Oh, design yeah. Pattern book, cause it got,
0: like, I've lost my gang there? of four a design patterns book. I don't think it's in the office. Not that I've yeah. been in there for like six months, but <laughs> but hopefully,
1: uh, hopefully our stuff's still there. We haven't checked on it. I'm, I'm sure it's safe, but what made you actually think oh, I need to, were you like, cause you bought two new design pattern books. So were you hopping back in to refresh your memory or what was the reason for going back to the books?
0: Well, um, I, uh, I've had a bit of a, uh, so I've always, um, sort of toyed at the edges of, like, learning about more about how domain-driven design works. Like, I've known about the strategic sort of patterns and uh, I decided I was, like, finally interested in actually learning more about how people actually implement uh, domain-driven ser- services because I think it's one of the only ways to make, uh, like, a microservice system work right is uh, mapping out and created, creating effective bounded contexts. Otherwise, you end up with... Uh, like distrib- like a distributed monolith Like distributed spaghetti Where every service talks to everything Talks to one database mm-hmm. And there's no clear division So you actually don't get any benefit from microservices mm. And even in a, a large monolith I don't think you get any, any benefit So anyway, I've, I've been reading um, uh, I've read uh, Eric Evans' uh, initial book I think it's called I've got it here Domain Driven Design I read that electronically and uh, that's more on the strategic stuff. So essentially like coming up with the ubiquitous languages, which is like figuring out how within each context, what language means and also how to communicate between teams, what things mean. It's really, it's about, uh, uh, I think, developers communicating with products more more than anything. Mm-hmm. The, the actual tactical stuff, which is like the uh, actual technical design patterns that domain-driven design calls for are less important but are helpful in maintaining uh, the strategic stuff that you do. So um, the implementing domain driven design book that I was reading, I just, I saw um, a few uh, notes. He actually references the design, the gang of four book several times. So I just wanted to have a a look back in there, but uh, yeah, this one's much more tech like technical than the one that I read before.
1: What was the other? You got two.
0: Well, um, Eric Evans is the person who sort of coined the term and that's the blue. There's like a blue and a red book for domain-driven design. You know how there's like the pickaxe book for Ruby? This is like the yep. the blue book for domain-driven design is like the initial book that came out and everyone uh, sort of, uh, that was sort of what made it, uh, th- uh, what would you call it? <laughs> Instantiated domain-driven design. <laughs> My brain's not working. I've been in <laughs> lockdown so much. I'm sorry. It's and just
1: yeah implemented as code. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah yeah
0: but um he lay down a whole bunch of stuff like uh, uh the most important thing is uh, he essentially goes through what I think, which is that uh like code is a story uh and it's more about communicating to other people um than than like just accomplishing an objective if you want anything to last in the long term and mm. uh yeah he he even says in there that uh, the Patterns and strategies that they apply aren't for every product, but uh, if you want to make something that's long-lasting and can be iterated on in the future, then uh, it'd probably be a good idea to follow some of their patterns. So,
1: did he come up with all these ideas, or was it a existing idea that he? I'm sure he purpose?
0: collected ideas from other people, but I think he's actually the one who coined domain-driven design. Yeah, I think that blue book is the initial is when it was actually called. Domain-Driven Design. I've not seen any other um, books before that. Eric Evans, yeah. Mm. And uh, I did some of uh, Von Vernon's courses on uh, Safari books. I have a Safari book subscription as well. And uh, so I did some of his courses and I really liked his content. And then I started reading the book, the, the red book that he wrote online. But, uh, you know, I'm getting old. and My eyes aren't working so well. So I'm trying to read it in actual paper. I think that makes it easier for me. So, yeah. It's also, it's nice to have a highlighter and actually go through and uh, feel the progress you're making in the book, that sort of stuff.
1: I feel like if I pick a book up to read it, it's because it's more of a purposeful action. It gives, you, gives your brain a chance to actually say, okay, I'm doing this. Whereas yeah. when it's on the screen, it's like...
0: Facebook it and there's all this other multitasking, stuff.
1: Multitasking, and, yeah.
0: Yeah. Someone sends you a message, you feel like you have to reply. Yeah, so when I have a physical book, I feel like I, I, I actually owe the book like... Uh, 40 minutes and like there's a clear start and end and I'll actually finish it whereas all the ebooks, it's like oh just stop wherever you want and then you can come back and I'll save your space but then I've yeah. not so like the way that I, I used to read books is uh, like come up with a set of questions and whatever before even reading the book from the chapter titles and but I've gotten lazier in my learning style as I've gone and so I'm trying to get that back sort of so but uh, it's interesting
1: yeah I think it, when I get books, just having the physical book sitting there on a desk somewhere, like, makes me read it. Mm. I've got so many e-books where I'm like, oh, this is a good book. I'll put it in my book folder.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you've seen the books I have. Else. I've actually read all of the books that are on in the office. That's yeah. a, a decent stack. Whereas I have the $500, six, or like 700 Australian dollar, uh, safari ebook subscription which is like every book on the planet but i've probably mm-hmm. read three books from there
1: so is that I, what 700 per it's quite
0: expensive yeah. per year yeah
1: mm, it is expensive
0: but you get it? like essentially i think eric evans book is in there i think i read it on safari and then this one as well but uh, uh von vernon's book is
1: as well that's o'reilly right uh is it O'Reilly? is
0: o'reilly but they they have rights to a whole bunch of stuff like prag Prague um books and everything so like I read the uh, like the Vim book on um, there's like modern Vim. I read that off Safari as well, ah. Instead of actually buying it, I just think like if I actually bought it, I could have been cool. Like I, I like the idea of having a book a bookshelf, but uh, yeah. yeah. But I live in an apartment, so those are just dreams. One day, maybe, maybe when, when I'm a me. landowner. A wealthy so landowner,
1: bearded developer, yeah, senior senior developer. I live in the mountains with my bookshelves. <laughs> yeah, you'll be off the grid by then, so you'll only be able to read books. Yep. have you have you um, ever
0: read anything by Khalil Stimler? Have I sent? Did you did I have no. I recommended him to you?
1: No, Well maybe he, you have, but it doesn't come to the top of mind. Uh, Khalil Stimler. He what's goes. His, he's what's like his a. Thing?
0: Uh, Uh, he's like a TypeScript DDD guy. Um, He he sort of goes through the like uh, more of the uh, tactical design patterns. He doesn't talk about ubiquitous language or anything that I've seen or that I've read at least, maybe he does. But uh, he seems to focus specifically on how you do the like tactical design patterns in TypeScript.
1: You must have recommended him to me because he's... The link's been clicked. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a purple link.
1: No, I do remember this guy. Yeah. I remember he's, he's got the cowboy hat. I remember now.
0: Yeah. So I think it, that is a good resource for trying to understand some of the words. But uh, if you don't understand the strategic stuff, like the, your ability to understand like an aggregate um, is, is almost impossible, like understanding what is an effective aggregate. Because if you get those mapped wrong, you just get pain, essentially. Sorry, what
1: do you mean? Can you go a bit deeper on that? An aggregate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so like the sum of all the smaller concepts, is that what you're getting at? Or?
0: No, it's actually a weird term. And uh, in a lot of ways, you might think of it as a model in some, in some ways, mm-hmm. but uh, it's also like a group of models. An aggregate right. um, is, so for example, if you have uh, a workflow and a whole bunch of tasks, a random mm-hmm. example,
1: Yeah, totally made up. (laughs) Yeah, I can't
0: imagine a system that uses those. (laughs) Your aggregate might be the workflow. Uh, And an aggregate is comprised of multiple entities and multiple value objects. And an entity can have multiple value objects. Mm. Uh, The aggregate is the consistency boundary. So any action uh, that occurs within that aggregate is transactionally safe so for example if you create a user and a workflow uh one of those could fail and not impact the other they're outside of each other's like transaction boundaries right if those are both aggregates Mm. so you can allow some of your system to fail while allowing the other parts to succeed uh as long as that makes sense for your system and uh the the aggregate, so, for example, you might save all of the tasks and the like overall like workflow or, or board whatever in the same transaction is a, is a way to think of it. Hmm. You can implement an aggregate in any sort of database, so a key value database is uh, you could just like save the entire JSON blob right if if an aggregate had a a top level ID that it's referred to. Yep. so all aggregates have a, a top level ID so user aggregate might have multiple home addresses, which could be entities, right? Like your home address could be in the home address table in a relational database. Mm. But the code itself doesn't care about that. All it cares about is the fact that uh, your user aggregate has three home addresses, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So typically an entity would be something that can be referred to by an ID, uh, but is within the aggregate. So you could think like... uh, Author in books isn't really an aggregate it's 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 hard because you have to think about what is a small enough uh uh item that it it can be operated on uh, without ever having someone else try and operate on the insides of it so if there's something where there's contention like multiple people are trying to update something, uh, that might not be the best place to have uh, an aggregate right. So there's an argument where you could say a workflow might be actually... Uh, the workflow itself might be an aggregate and the tasks themselves could be an aggregate. It just depends on the way that you end up modeling it. And that might change over time.
1: Does you actually sense. use this term when you're modeling things or is it more of a, a way to describe a, a, an, ex, an existing system, the way it works? Do you mean... Uh, so the ag- it's, ag- aggregate idea. It
0: is... I don't name things, like I don't say aggregate in the code itself typically because I think that's actually more confusing because not, not many people that I know know about that term. I think it's a very important term to know, but uh, uh, it's, it takes a lot of, like you have to understand the rest of DDD essentially to understand what an aggregate is. So mm. there's, not, there's not a huge, a huge point in me uh, naming things aggregate just model is fine and then uh you can just say like we're trying to encapsulate stuff and then that's mm. that's all you have to say transaction boundary what are the what about the other ones have you heard of value objects probably
1: no
0: you've not heard of value objects huh
1: oh. well i say no and then <laughs> I Google it. And i'll probably find another purple link <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: i've probably said it before yeah um a value object is typically so. A lot of the times in code, uh, you underrepresent sort of your domain. Um, so instead of having something like money, be like you could have a user, and then they might have a balance, right? And that balance, like you see how we just referred to that as balance, like it's clearly a thing. Like it is, it is a thing that needs to be treated on in a special way. And it's a balance is made of probably money maybe, and it might have history. But uh, a lot of the times when you go into a code base, what you'll have is like balance currency and balance dollars, right? And then that will just be strewn everywhere. Uh, and the the treatment of those two values uh, inside of it, those two like strings, for example, so a string of the, of the number or maybe an integer of the number, never float, and the currency label, um, those instead of treating that as like two separate fields that becomes balance hmm. as a as a top level understandable testable thing and uh, one of the key points of a value object is that it's always valid so if i create a balance and i give it the non existent currency code of like uh, abc123 hmm. uh, it shouldn't it should not be able to create it essentially no. so you essentially maintain an always valid domain, like internal domain, using uh, uh,
1: value objects. So you're putting all the all the relevant pieces that need to need to be part of a balance. You're encapsulating that all into the same piece of logic. Yes. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because if you if you're going to treat the currency like the currency can change, but the balance is still the same, isn't it?
0: That's right, um, but it's up to well, you might say. In order for you to change currencies or to translate currencies, it might be the responsible of r- responsibility of that balance object uh, mm. to actually do the conversion and like make sure that it is a valid conversion and no one actually just changes AUD to USD yeah. while maintaining the same number. Right, so it it actually has to be properly transformed and created in the right way, Mm. and that's that's communication. Like that's communication through structure, like the structure of the code, and it's not unique to to uh, object oriented programming either. None of this stuff, Um, like Scala does this. Haskell, you would still wrap and have uh, like a record with just because the object oriented just means it's like you have data with methods, right? But you can still maintain all of these principles that we're talking about while like, n- at least naming the data correctly. So for example, if you load in um, you know, money digit and uh, label string, you can at least create something that represents that model so it's more communicative to people
1: coming down the line. Do you do this with your date object as well?
0: Yeah, yeah. So some of the ones that we have in our code would be uh, like absolute date right mm. so an absolute date is um is a like 20231198 <laughs> let's not give my actual birthday
1: <laughs> <right there. laughs> yeah but uh, just a, just a date you've picked out of the air yeah no reason, no
0: reason. Yeah. but uh that that date object is valid when it's created it can't be instantiated incorrectly it it has its own validations attached to it and uh something that you'll see a lot in code especially legacy code that doesn't follow any of the, like doesn't have the sort of concept or idea of value objects is validation is very confused. Like knowing when to validate something is very difficult if you don't do this. Because what happens is you accept the data from the API and then it comes in. uh, I can give you an example. I was working on like a a vanilla JavaScript uh, uh, Lambda API and the date was being parsed and validated in six different ways in the same function because they weren't like sure is this value going to be sent here and they weren't validating it at the top level so they, were, they had to validate it at every edge of the system so it keeps all of those like dangerous unknowns as far to the edge where the user's interacting with your system as possible as well hmm. so value objects and this sort of thing are also actually uh, beneficial for your security model because if you have a value object you know for a fact it's valid uh, and operations on it can o- it even helps like if you have a type system for example like I can't just say uh, balance plus one and that just adds money right I have to go through a process uh, like a valid process for adding money to a balance
1: mm. and then if if you um, if you build some class which has to have that specific value object then you're kind of locking down the ability for someone to just well if you're using the balance example again if you say that they have to use the balance value object, that's a good way to lock down the logic so that you know that whatever balance gets used through that class is going to be in the right kind of... Uh, that's right. ...way that it needs to be used.
0: Yeah. So you can see you have an aggregate and value objects because you have this uh, consistency boundary where you've said everything within this block is always consistent and will always be here. Um, and you have value objects. You essentially remove the possibility for your system to fail in those like in very blatant those are those are sort of the errors that i always see which are like uh, undefined or like uh uh, overflows those sort of things um like unexpected overflows which just don't become an i don't think really are an issue if you properly map out and have value objects in these sort of systems so
1: were you following any of these patterns when you were writing just Vanilla JS before the TS days?
0: In Ruby I was. Um,
1: what about a Node?
0: I didn't really write much Vanilla Node. I only right. did the little bit that we did at that place together. Yep. And uh, after that I pretty much said I'm not interested. in. I actually told <laughs> every recruiter I'm not interested <laughs> in working Node in Node.js yeah. because it's just like there's no uh, essentially there's a really great quote about um, uh, Von Verne makes a really great quote. Uh, I actually have it here. It, uh, so, in this book that I'm reading, he says it seems that Scrum and other agile techniques are being used as substitutes for careful modeling, where product backlog is thrust at developers as if it serves as a set of designs. Most agile practitioners leave their daily stand-up without giving a second thought to how their backlog tasks will will affect the underlying model of the business. Although I assume this is needless to say, I must assert that Scrum, for example, was never meant to stand in place of design. However, I feel like most people, most places I've worked, it's been quite the opposite. Or, or that is the case, what he's describing there. So, it's funny
1: that you read that because sometimes uh, I've been in that position myself and it's I feel quite uneasy just to have a a ticket on the board with no design and then it just gets started working on. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And by agile practitioner, like it doesn't mean that the product manager has to do it, but there is design, right? Like the design is there. It's always there. It's just, are you doing it consciously or subconsciously? So.
1: And what's the impact of the ticket, right? Yeah. You can write a ticket and you think, oh yeah, it's just like, who knows what the underlying implementation the effect that that might on flow
0: through the whole system so that's uh i cut that quote off early but he has an entire uh section on that specifically and uh, i've seen it as well where because the product manager just wants feature uh you totally forget the fact that feature impacts everything right Mm. and so that's how things get bloated and things start breaking because well you said you wanted this feature but uh you know, I <laughs> I didn't consider all the 1,500 different ways that it could impact us. So we just end up in like a, we push off that like upfront design time that would have taken like maybe a day with a whiteboard and you push it off into the future of like forever the operations team will be get, getting alerts for your shitty feature that you shoved onto the system. So, mm.
1: Do you think it's inevitable that you don't know these... Um- you don 't know these impacts until they actually happen, and then once, once you've actually designed a system, you can see where the imperfections are.
0: Uh, yeah, actually, uh, in a lot of ways, yes, but um, one of the things that I like to do, uh, so uh, Prag Prague, the actual pragmatic programmer book, um, talks about a concept called tracer rounds, um, which is a lot of the times you're going to come up with like, come up to a, a requirement that you have no idea how to implement. Um, So the best thing to do is to just try and implement it and then see what broke and what worked and what didn't work and what do you think isn't going to work. Because there's almost no way that you... Some systems, there's no way that you can keep everything in your head and like on a whiteboard and think of every possible circumstance right up front. But like first having like an actual prototype that you are willing to throw away, right? Which is not what normally happens. Normally when someone says, I'm going to do a spike... (laughs) what happens to the spike the spike is designed and built and then the spike goes into the software as production code right Mm. and no one ever did the second round but actually purposely having the feeling that i'm going to delete all this and restart over is the way to maintain a a a good like solid design right Mm. be willing to throw away that sort of code and you'll implement it a hundred times faster the second time around even if you um even if you need to change it so but uh, some of those techniques aren't possible in some code bases admittedly because they're microservices distributed monoliths but yeah
1: yeah that's right sometimes you don't have the luxury of being able to throw code away
0: no well or at least no one will let you so just don't <laughs> work there that would be <laughs> that's my best advice <laughs> find some be, way that cares
1: uh, it'd be interesting to see uh like what the oldest piece of software ends up being. Like there must be some really old pieces out there that just
0: Yeah, there's still you know, ancient mainframes running.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's and old like, like they can't uh, be turned off for yeah. whatever reason.
0: Oh yeah. That's uh in the banking industry. That's like uh there's like old Fortran or COBOL systems like still running now and uh haven't been shut off. So yeah. yeah. And those systems were the ones they, they like implemented patches for like uh, the, the Y2K bug, those sort of things. Yeah. Those systems are still running because no one knows how they work. So,
1: <laughs> Bit of a problem. Yeah. One day they'll have to be shut down at the end of time. No, they've when got...
0: Why, when why we would leave they? the
1: planet Earth. Oh, right, when we yeah. go to Mars to restart a new banking system. When they rebuild that one, it'll be fine. They'll get it right that time.
0: Yeah, or, you know, nuclear fallout or whatever. Who knows? Whichever one comes first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh but, well, the well, the design pattern book, do you keep revi- like, revisiting it or do you try and memorize all the patterns?
0: No, not really. Uh, there 's like six so uh, the w- one bad thing that can happen is um uh, if you if you hear like oh, design patterns are fantastic, you go and you read about design patterns and you try to wedge them in everywhere, and so you 'll have like a design pattern code right which everything is a is a design pattern like a an abstract factory where it 's not needed like you 're not even you 'll have a factory for every single object for for instance.
1: Mm.
0: Adhering too strongly to these methods can be uh, negative. So, for example, like uh, there's a a principle that you have like uh, an interface for, like re- depend on an interface instead of a concrete implementation. But uh, that shouldn't mean that you always actually have to uh, make a an interface and a class file and bind that in your uh, like IOC container. You should be willing to say, this, this isn't worth it and we can just change it later if we have to. So, yeah. So I don't, so I, know, I'm not too fixated on it.
1: You know, in the front-end world, yeah. say like React Land, mm-hmm. what are the common design patterns that come up there?
0: Well, there's like state management patterns, but all of the patterns that... I think that that's something that people are confused about is that all these design patterns apply from the back end to the front end, like it's still mm-hmm. code. It's just that you, A, are running on a like uh, memory-limited system, potentially, so you want better performance, and B, like the front-end frameworks are a bit meaner to you when you try and do these things. But that's about it. You can still uh, you could use the same code you wrote on the back end as the front end, essentially. And uh, they may not look the same. So for example, like uh, knowing the fact <clears throat> like decorator, like decorator objects are one of my favorite patterns that I use all the time. Which is essentially, uh, you take a class that is that has some fields. For example, like first name, last name, and instead of adding like the sixteen different ways you're going to concatenate and merge first name, middle name, and last name for your application, you would wrap that in a, in another object called like user name or whatever. So username would take a user and then it would have the methods that actually know about how to get a name out of a user, for example. Mm. Uh, if you know about that pattern, then there's no reason why you couldn't just wrap an object. It could be just plain functions, for example. But like that same sort of pattern, you might not call it a decorator object, but you can still wrap an object with another object that has additional fields. And that might, instead of like calling like concatenating strings everywhere... In the front end, which happens a lot. Maybe you just use that decorated object.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And that well, way you're gonna get the same uh formatting out all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So You just uh, have
1: to make sure your team buys in, right? Yeah. yeah. You don't be you don't wanna be doing it one way and then your team's doing it a different way.
0: Yeah, no, that would be horrible. I can't imagine a code base like that. <laughs> That would
1: never happen, would it? <laughs> no. <laughs> why would that happen? <laughs> no, never. No. Uh
0: yeah, I mean um, factories, the thing you just said about uh, getting a uh like the API. I think you said service. I'm assuming by service you mean like an API or something. Yeah. Entirely possible in React. In fact, in like uh, Angular, I think factories and services are essentially first class citizens. Like Oh really? There's no reason why you can't use those same patterns. It's just I think people are very bound to the framework in the front end unfortunately. Mm. But the framework isn't really where the magic happens. Like, uh, it's just the, like, it's a small implementation detail. Your logic should be the same regardless. And uh, one of the big things about uh, DDD is about keeping all of your uh, domain logic uh, separate from the implementation. So you might have a a model, so... you know, active record, those sort of things where like uh, everything is directly connected to the beta- database. Everything is talking to every subsystem, like your user model has like uh, the SNS publisher, and it just directly accesses it when you call a mm-hmm. method on it. DDD wants a stateless domain model so that you remove the, the there's no ambigu- am- ambiguity about what the actions are you're actually performing, and the way that they're actually performed doesn't matter. Just, it's a pretty daunting topic to talk about, but essentially, if you can pull some of that logic out of the like, React tree and manage it independently, it means that you have very clear actual logic instead of like being bound to react.
1: Yep. yep. Or if you want to use multiple front-end frameworks, you just do a micro front-end, and you make an <laughs> angular header.: Yeah and you make a React sidebar and you make a view container.
0: Th- that's our recommendation. <laughs> the uh, unreleased software uh, seal of trust goes on micro frameworks, <laughs> micro <front> end frameworks. <laughs> so what could go wrong?
1: I remember the we all love the on Spotify your face client. When I showed you this, yeah. I you the the microfrontend.
0: What was that framework called? You weren't
1: impressed. No, Let's just leave it's it. Disgusting. At that. Yeah,
0: I mean, you. We've all experienced the Spotify client, like. That is a micro front end. So uh, let's not go down that path anymore. Spotify did it; they did it specifically so they could just hire as many people as possible. It's pretty much no other reason than that.
1: Well, they had all that startup money; they had to do something with it.
0: Yeah, we have to we have to invoice more for engineering.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Use that budget up. Why would
0: we send it to marketing? <laughs> we could have fifteen people building the app, but instead, yeah.
1: But uh, it's a big team, yeah, isn't it? Spotify yeah, it is so uh, design patterns yeah go get it everyone
0: you have to go get it and that's uh, I guess that's I think that's all all that we had for today is that right
1: I don't know do you have more (laughs) no I do have more
0: (laughs) well I don't know we're meant to do 30 minutes it's it's almost 40 now so
1: that was a big one well when you get onto a good topic like design patterns I mean we could talk for weeks on end but yeah, of course unfortunately we're limited by the technology of our times
0: and I've got to get off and like uh, walk around my house aimlessly uh, <laughs> stare at the wall contemplate why we exist <laughs>
1: yeah, don't do that too much
0: welcome to Australia
1: just pick that design pattern book back up again. that's much better yeah. we'll keep all yourself all your distracted
0: don't think about life. <laughs> uh, Let's
1: hop on the Discord server and ask us questions if you want.
0: Yeah, people do that. Get on on there. (laughs) Yeah, please. (laughs) Don't you remember us? (laughs) We're those guys. (laughs) All right, have a nice day.
1: Very good.